Hello, and welcome to the Osterholm Update, COVID-19, a new weekly podcast on the global COVID-19 pandemic with Dr. Michael Osterholm, Director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy, or CIDRAP, at the University of Minnesota. Dr. Osterholm is an internationally recognized medical detective with more than 45 years of experience investigating and researching infectious disease outbreaks. And since 2005, he has been warning of the potential for a global pandemic and emphasizing the critical need for pandemic preparedness. His 2017 book, Deadliest Enemy, warned of a scenario very similar to what we are experiencing now with this novel coronavirus. Each episode of the podcast, Dr. Osterholm will be discussing the latest COVID-19 news, data, guidance, and perspective. I'm Chris Dahl, reporter for SIDRAP News, and I'll be your host for these conversations. Mike, it's been nearly three months since the first COVID-19 cases were reported in China, and now the epicenter of the outbreak has moved from China to Europe and the United States. Can you explain how we got here and give us an update on the current status of the pandemic? Well, first of all, thank you, Chris. It's uh, good to be with you. Uh, In short, to explain how we got here is, is that we had the emergence of a coronavirus infection in Wuhan, China, that uh, obviously jumped from an animal species to a human. And in just a few short months, acted very much like an influenza virus would do with a new, the emergence of a new pandemic strain. This particular virus is now spread around the world. It's been documented in at least 168 countries, and we're well approaching close to 400,000 cases at the time of this recording. Uh, we know that there obviously have been many, many more cases than that, uh, just that, again, to be called a case, one had to be tested and found to have evidence of the virus, which, of course, is just a small grab sample of the total number of people that have been affected worldwide. What's your uh, assessment of, of the situation in the United States right now? Well, first of all, to really understand where we're at, uh, it helps to go back and look where we've been. As I mentioned, we know that this virus emerged sometime in mid-November uh, in the Wuhan region. And from that time until what would be really late December, this virus uh, began to spread throughout the population. In retrospect, we now know that this virus has what we call an r naught, or a likely reproductive number, meaning how many people does an average case infect, of about 2 to 2.5. To put that into perspective, regular influenza infects about 1.4. Uh, individuals, and pandemic influenza about 1.8. It took over the course of about five to six weeks for those numbers to double from one to two, and then five days later, two to four, five days later, four to eight, and until the numbers started to increase and getting into the hundreds, where by that time, that tip of the iceberg, as we call it, of severe cases was enough to alert clinicians in the Wuhan area that something unusual was happening. This was not just influenza. Why is that important? Because if it took about five weeks or more in Wuhan before clinicians realized it was transmitting there, imagine this virus newly entering into a country somewhere else around the world where the same uh, actual process takes place. And that what happens is once the virus is introduced, then it may circulate quietly in in a sense before it's recognized by clinicians. And when that happens, uh, then you start to see more and more people infected 
And by the time someone detects it, meaning there's a sufficient number of cases that clinicians say, ah, okay, something unusual here, um, it is already well-seated into the community. Think about the fact that the difference between a couple of generations may give you 50 or 60 cases, of which today we know roughly 80% appear to be mild to moderate illness, only 20% more severe, and only 5% of those really critically ill needing intensive care medicine. And how many cases you would have to have before your community would recognize this problem? Uh, It may be many weeks. But once you do recognize it, by that time, you're doubling numbers of 1,000 to 2,000 to 4,000 to potentially 8,000. And that's the challenge we have today is that by the time we pick it up in many communities, it already has really saturated into the area. And so when you ask about the status of what's happened in the United States today, we are just a microcosm of that same event that happened in Wuhan. in the Seattle King County area, where we have one of the major epicenters of activity, we know that at least one individual came from Wuhan in early January. And uh, although it was thought that the individual's contacts were all identified and followed up, we now know that someone may be infectious before they ever become ill. Uh, And there actually was ongoing virus transmission in the Seattle King County area literally from mid-January well into the end of February when cases were first detected with enhanced testing capability. By the time they found it, it had already spread likely to many different people within that community. The same thing is surely the case in New York City, where today we are seeing the main epicenter in North America, and likely that virus has been there for at least uh, uh, six to eight weeks, where we're now talking about doubling cases uh, in the thousands. And so throughout the world, this is what's happened over and over again, whether it be Italy, whether it be Spain, uh, we see this kind of transmission that initially is very quiet, almost silent. People don't realize it's there. And then we see this sudden, you might call flame out kind of situation where I liken it a little bit to the, the individual whose house uh, catches fire in the kitchen and behind the stove, and they think, well, we've got it out, till all of a sudden they realize it had gotten into the wall, and then the house flashes with a fire. And that's kind of what we see here. So one of the challenges we have is often by the time we pick up uh, one of these outbreaks in any one given community, there may be already a substantial number of infections in that community. And then what happens is that we just have a, a, what I call a rolling set of outbreaks that will occur. So for example, in the United States, While we see these epicenters right now in King County, uh, we see them in the greater New York City metropolitan area and even potentially in Southern California. There are many other smaller outbreaks that are emerging into larger outbreaks and throughout the United States and for that matter throughout the world. And so what we're really watching here is not one big tidal wave of cases, but the accumulation of many of these more limited outbreaks that then collectively bring together the cases. And and then from that, we get a sense of the major uh, challenge for a given country or a given region of the world. Now, one point to note is that often comes up is, well, in fact, does that mean that there will be a peak at this time or that time? And as these smaller, and in some cases, not that small in the sense of total numbers, but smaller in the sense of an entire country outbreak, we will see then those numbers of cases kind of accumulating together to get that, what we call rising curve. 
And of course, we'll talk more about this in a moment, but the goal that we all had is to keep that new number of cases flattened so that it doesn't keep increasing and the implication that has for healthcare. So the final point to make about all of this is that we clearly are in this for the long haul. Uh, I just remind people here, we sit here now towards the end of March, and we're still talking about cases in Asia. And even in China, which has over the last several days reported no new cases, I think many of us believe that there are still there's still influenza and uh, coronavirus activity in China, and that we need to to uh, discern where each of those are occurring. But with that coronavirus activity, it points out that for at least at least three months we've had ongoing transmission, which I would expect to be seen happen in many places. That means we ourselves could clearly have major activity going on for months and months yet before uh, it might either burn itself out by infecting so many people, or we have uh, uh, the opportunity to suppress it by holding down population mixing, uh, which, by the way, doesn't end the risk. It only means that until you, as long as you have that uh, population restriction in place, that uh, you can hold it back, or we get a vaccine. And uh, that, of course, would be the redeemer of all redeemers. But uh, we know that if we even do that, that'll be many, many months off. So uh, you mentioned the idea of uh, flattening the curve. Uh, The number of states in the U.S. imposing shelter-in-place orders is growing by the day. Uh, What do you think we're going to see in terms of our national experience in the days and weeks ahead? Well, this, I think, is where... um, we have to add a great deal of human humility to what we understand. Um, Our group uh, at SIDRAP has been following this very carefully since the first emergence of cases in late December. And uh, we recognized early on that there was a a very unusual situation happening in Wuhan. And because we thought it must be much more like SARS or MERS, where uh, a coronavirus emerges, people become infected, but they don't really become uh, infectious until about the fifth or sixth day of illness. And at that point, if you have identified them before that infectiousness begins, you can put them into isolation in hospitals, in a sense, wall them off from the rest of the world, and uh, you can stop the infection from spreading that way, particularly if you identify the animal species responsible for transmitting it to the humans. You get rid of that out of the markets, so you're not getting pinged anymore with virus, and you can bring it under control. And I think many of us early on just made an assumption, SARS, MERS-like model here is happening in Wuhan. Well, that wasn't the case at all. And we recognized that by early January, something unusual was happening. The transmission appeared to be much more akin to what we think of with influenza, very dynamic transmission, potential transmission occurring even before onset of symptoms. On January 20th, I uh, uh, shared a, a document with our SIDRAP leadership forum group, a group of companies and organizations that we consult with and provide information to uh, on emerging problems just like this. And I said that I now believe that this was, in fact, going to be a global epidemic or a pandemic and that there was no way we were going to stop it. On February 3rd, we went so far as to say, based on this example I just gave you about the time 
that it takes from its fir- the virus's first introduction until there's a sufficient number of cases to not only be detected clinically, but to kind of cause this very rapid in- increase in number of cases with doubling of very large numbers. And we said that it was very likely that we'd have a quiet month and that despite the fact that people would say, well, you know, it doesn't seem to be spreading, it would be. And we predicted in that first week of February that by the end of February and early March, we would see it in many different countries, finally showing its ugly head. And in some places, that would actually present a very, very severe challenge with increased number of cases. Well, the virus arrived right on time. With increased testing available in a number of countries, including our own, uh, we found it. And it did begin to act just like we thought uh, today in the Lombardy region of Italy, Uh, around the Milan area. It clearly is acting just like it did in Wuhan. We're seeing that now emerge in Spain. And of course, we already talked about the issues of of what's happening in the United States. So from that perspective, this virus has actually followed the script that we have pretty much predicted would happen. Where does it go from here? Well, you know, people uh, are often trying to suggest they know where this is going to go based on two things. One is what's previously happened with the SARS-MERS-like transmission issues and influenza. I already mentioned that this virus is being transmitted much like an influenza virus, uh, very dynamic uh, and uh, very rapidly uh, building up cases in a given area. One area, though, that we don't know is will it have a seasonality to it? like we see with influenza. Let me remind the audience here that, number one, when you think of seasonal flu, think of it as a disease that, yes, does occur in the winters of the northern and southern hemispheres, respectively, but it's just transmitted year-round in the tropics and oftentimes substantial transmission. Uh, In addition, if you look at the uh, past 10 influenza pandemics that have occurred in the world dating back more than 250 years, Two started in the winter, three started in the spring, two started in the summer, and three started in the fall. And when you look at where the peak activity occurred, it almost was always exclusively almost six months after the first emergence, such as in 2009 with the first emergence of H1N1. uh, We saw the virus in mid to late February begin to spread throughout parts of Mexico. We picked it up here in the United States in early April. And uh, we had that first early peak in the spring. And yes, we had that big second peak uh, in the early fall. And the peak number of cases in North America occurred from mid-September to mid-October. Exactly warm months in terms of of the potential for uh, somehow the virus being altered in its transmission uh, by weather. Didn't happen. Uh, And that was true for all the pandemics. On top of that, if you look at actual coronaviruses themselves, particularly those caused by SARS and MERS, SARS began uh, in the fall, early winter of 2002 in the Guangdong province. By the time we recognized it outside of China, it was in early 2003, and it really took us several months to understand this issue about when one was most infectious and how best to control this, and such that uh, it wasn't really until uh, really in the later March, early April, we got a handle on that. And then once we understood how to control it, getting these people into, into isolation areas, we ended up uh, eliminating the virus uh, by the early part of June, as well as getting it out of the animal reservoir in the markets of the Guangdong province. 
ended the case. Well, a lot of people interpreted that to mean summertime did it. And it wasn't the case at all. It was just how long it took. If we look at MERS, a disease that I have also been involved with investigating, uh, having been in the Arabian Peninsula, that is a disease that continues to occur because the animal reservoir is camels. And we're not going to put down 1.7 million camels in the Arabian Peninsula. So what we've had to do is be very quick to respond to potential human cases. And uh, again, the same process we use with SARS, uh, uh, quickly identify them, isolate them, and follow up on contacts. But notable here is these cases occur around the year, all year round. Uh, you know, I've, I've been in Abu Dhabi when it was 110 degrees, and there was fine uh, transmission going on at that point. So when you add this all up, uh, no one can say that this is going to have a seasonal uh, kind of picture to it. It might, but there's not a reason to think that it would. With that, I would say in the U.S., what's likely to happen is that we will have ongoing transmission right through the summer. There may be peak activity that can occur in a couple of months as more cases build up, possibly at that point uh, have some respite in cases where they decrease and then have another big wave, a second one, or we may just have one big wave. Or depending on what we do in terms of prevention, we may just suppress the virus uh, transmission, keeping cases at a low constant level, but at a pretty significant cost to society in terms of really shutting down everything we know about our current uh, way of life. And uh, I don't think we can take that decision lightly, meaning that we don't want to not do it if we're protecting life. But at how much do we do before we ask ourselves, is this really accomplishing uh, the suppression of cases by taking these activities? So I think where it's going to go in the United States right now is un unclear. I have grave concerns in an op-ed piece I wrote in today's Washington Post with my co-author, Mark Olshaker. Uh, we talked about this very issue of, of what happens in terms of the long-term plan. And we don't have one. There is no one plan in the United States. Um, are we trying to suppress cases until we get a vaccine some 15 months later? Uh, maybe more. Maybe we won't even get it. Um, are we trying to uh, say, well, you know, we can't stop this. We can't keep uh, this kind of uh, a lockdown scenario ongoing for many, many months to come. So we kind of have to let it go and just let the cards fall where they may. Or is there some strategy in the middle, as I liken to say, kind of threading the needle with the rope of trying to minimize the exposure to the most vulnerable people who are more likely to have severe disease and death, meaning those uh, in their 50s, older, those with underlying health conditions. And uh, if that be the case, then that would be another scenario where we might seek uh, substantial transmission, but we keep it more in the younger age population where there have been very, very few uh, deaths and serious illnesses. And uh, that over time, these people are the ones that become immune, uh, having gotten the infection. Uh, and in that immune status, they basically can uh, be in the public. They can work in uh, occupational areas where they might be exposed again and not be at risk of, of getting a secondary uh, disease issue. Uh, people will often ask, well, do you know if you get uh, actual immunity with this infection? And we don't have absolute proof. But there's actually uh, emerging data used looking at animal models. Just a study published at the end of last week showed that in macaque monkeys, 
that when they were challenged with the virus, they all became infected with the COVID-19 virus. Uh, but then they were re-challenged weeks later after they'd recovered. None of them got infected again, indicating that there had been uh, ongoing protection uh, after the initial infection. So I think the real question we have today is who's in charge of all of this? Uh, meaning, is this the federal government? Is it the White House? What's our plan? We don't have one. Are we going to leave this to 50 different state governors, all who I believe have acted out of uh, courage? They've they've uh, doing it because of grave concern for the safety of their uh, respective uh, states, and uh, and it's really a challenge to ask ourselves, you know. Should we be having 50 different state governors making decisions about science-based and policy-based issues, or should we try to provide national leadership to get us through this? And obviously, I think the audience here can figure out where I come down on that. In the op-ed piece I watched, I wrote in the Washington Post, uh, I was very clear that that we needed a very strong federal presence, but right now that's absent relative to planning for this area. And uh, that this, I can't imagine a more important thing the government can do right now than provide that kind of leadership. Uh, given the absence of, of a unified strategy at this point, uh, what do you think are going to be some important elements of, the, of, of threading the needle? Is it going to be more testing? Uh, is it going to be kind of rolling uh, shutdowns? What, what, what's that going to look like? Well, first of all, we just have to be honest about what we know and don't know. We can't have happy talk, and we have far too much of that right now. You know, what little accomplishment here, this accomplishment there. I don't want to minimize that. Um, And I don't want to find us losing sight of what these numbers mean. In each instance, these numbers are a person. They're someone who has been severely ill or even died. They're loved ones. They're family members. So we can't minimize that. But we also have to be honest and say, what do we know and not know? And I, I find if there's anything that's very frustrating today is the fact that, that I think we're missing the real honest perspective for the public. And I think there are many contributors. It's not a single source. And let me give you some examples. For example, which methods of limiting human contact with each other really is going to make a difference? And in some cases, it's counterintuitive. Uh, Last week, we had a report issued by the Imperial College in London on modeling the uh, situation of of mitigation, of trying to limit contact with people and what the outcome would be with this virus. And there is a a similar report going to be issued by the group at Harvard, which very much supports the report that I just shared with you. And in that report, uh, the author has concluded the following. One is, that uh, certain events likely have very little impact on whether or not the virus spreads. And one of them, which is counterintuitive to most people, are crowds. And why is that? You say, well, that just doesn't make sense. But in fact, if you look at the quote-unquote distribution of crowds and how viruses might get transmitted, people within crowds stay within the little groups that they are. So that they're not having contact with 50,000 people in the arena or 5,000. They're not going around shaking everyone's hand. Uh, They're not hugging each other, where uh, that is what is really important in terms of transmission of the virus. So they actually concluded that crowds really don't play that much of a role in transmitting these viruses. It's the same small group you're with or near that are going to be the ones to become infected, and you'd be with them whether you're in a crowd or not. 
that's counterintuitive. But again, that's one of the uh, actions we've taken uh, to limit crowds of any size. It, we have to be clear when we know and don't know something. We have acted like we have high levels of precision about crowd size. Originally, we said a crowd of 5,000, 500, then 50, then 10. Do you know that there are no data that supports any of those numbers? They were almost kind of grabbed out of the air. And I don't have a problem with that as a public health professional all these years that sometimes had to make tough decisions in emergency situations. We do it. But then at least tell people that. You know, this is not a hard science. We don't understand that. And again, that's part of the straight talk. Um, when we look at the issue of child uh, care and, and schools, uh, we saw everyone rush to close schools. And again, if I'm a governor uh, with not a full understanding of what these measures might do or not do, I can understand why they did that. I, I, I've, I understand they're caring about their population. But let's take a step back and look at the big picture. And this is what we have to do right now. I'll say this once. I'll probably say it again. We cannot play this like I play checkers with my 10-year-old grandson one move down the board. We have to play this like a chess master, someone who's looking 10 moves down the board with every move. And take the school issue as an example. And in the influenza area, an area that I do a great deal of work in, it is clear and compelling that kids play a huge role in transmitting influenza viruses in our community each winter. Uh, they're kind of like little viral reactors in schools. They're very vulnerable to this, and they become infected, and they transmit it to all the other students. These students then take it home to their parents. And when you look at that uh, situation, uh, you could automatically assume, because we've talked about influenza-like transmission with this virus, that the same must be true for the coronavirus. Well, when we actually look at this, we don't have the data to support that. Grant you it's limited. But if we look, for example, in uh, China, we know that kids can get infected, even though they have a very, very, very low rate of clinical disease or uh, uh, severe illness, they still can get infected. But we don't have any evidence that kids in schools picked up this virus, brought it home, and caused more people to get sick in the household than if they weren't in school at all. Another example of that is what happened in Singapore and Hong Kong two areas that have used similar control methods that uh, had a very uh, high level of success in containing the virus initially. As I mentioned earlier, there it's more challenging now for them. But in doing that, they found similar results. In one, in Hong Kong, where they closed schools, in Singapore, where they didn't. And so we have to look at this, not because we, again, would be afraid to pull the trigger, but what are the consequences of doing that? Well, first of all, if you think about uh, closing schools today, there are many people who are working in the workforce who, without child care of some kind, couldn't be in the workforce. Uh, in survey data recently of health professionals in, in hospitals in various areas of the country, up to 20% of nurses report that they could not come to work because they'd have no alternative uh, source of care for their kids. They have to stay home with their children. People say, well, that can't be the case. Look at the summer times and all that. They, they don't have school then, but actually they do. People don't realize most of these programs are actually school sponsored. So for after school hours, before school hours, summertime hours, and they're all closed down too. So now we have created a really major issue with losing up to 20% of nurses. I can tell you with certainty that is costing human lives. 
we already are having a large uh, issue with the number of healthcare professionals that are providing care to the ever-growing number of patients uh, in these hospitals. So why lose 20% of the workers that are key to keeping these hospitals running? Um, in addition to that, we know that if you have emergency childcare needs and you can't find another source, who do we call? Grandparents, if they're in the area. Well, these are the very people right now we're talking about trying to protect. You know, for the duration of this time period, these are the people that we would say, let's try to get them through this time without getting infected so that we can get them closer to a, having a vaccine one day and not having to get infected and end up becoming major uh, uh, challenges with our healthcare system uh, for the system as well as for their own health. So there's just an example. We have to really think these kinds of events through to figure out what we're going to do. So within that context, we'd want to know what's going to work and what's not going to work. And in this model that I just mentioned from the Imperial College, they found that uh, in a sense, uh, the contact tracing, the early identification by testing was going to have the most impact. And it was going to suppress cases as much as anything would. Now, I'm going to mention in a moment why I don't think that's applicable anymore. But it does point out that, that without that kind of constant pressure, we don't have any really reasonable chance to think that we're going to stop this virus transmission. Um, People will comment about the Chinese uh, and their work there, and I think it's been amazing what they've done. I don't believe that the kind of draconian autocratic methods they used of literally jailing people in their houses for many, many weeks uh, would ever fly here. And short of that, they were not able to draw down the infections in, in China. And so I look at it here and say, well, we aren't going to prevent it without these severe, severe uh, uh, movement uh, restrictions. Do we want to live in a country? Can we live in a country for the next 18 months or more under those conditions? Um, wh who, will, who will get us our food? Who will make sure that we have public safety? Who will make sure we have running water and lights? Uh, and I think when you look at all of that, that's going to be a big challenge. So, so we have to look much more carefully at that with the idea that in my mind, our goal should be keeping as many people as possible from getting severe illness and flooding our healthcare system. Another area that we have a real challenge with today is the concept of testing. Um, testing today has become a very uh, desired uh, activity where I want to know. I want to know my status. And I understand intuitively why people would say that. We've had politicians, we've had media that have pressed very, very heavy to get testing done. Well, one of the things we're going to have to realize is that all this testing we've promised is about to fall far, far short of what anybody has suggested would be available. Why? Because even though commercial testing is coming up today, the reagents we need to actually run these tests are in very short supply and we're running out. And so I believe in two to three weeks, we're going to start seeing major shortages of any kind of testing at all. Um, we already have states in this country where they can't do testing using the public health labs because they've run out of reagents, and that's happening every day more and more often in labs around the country. Even the commercial labs have now warning that they may have real challenges. Where does this reagent come from? In many cases, it comes from China, which has been under uh, a basic lockdown. And from uh, a manufacturing standpoint, that's a real challenge. 
So we have to rethink this because in a few short weeks, all these proponents of widespread testing are going to find themselves no testing. And then the public is going to go through another whipsaw where basically, wait a minute, one minute testing was everything. The next minute, I can't do it. And if we don't tell people this now, this is part of the straight talk and explain to them, we'll get through this. We did in 1918. We didn't have uh, any kind of test back then for, uh, for the flu virus. Uh, it's going to be more complicated, much more complicated, but we're going to do it. And this is where we, again, have to play this like a chess master. We are not seeing our leaders think about that. They're not at all uh, attuned to the fact that testing will soon implode. In fact, I keep hearing them talking about the more testing we have, the better it will be. Remember, the whole world wants to test right now. The reagents of the world are going to be grossly inadequate to handle that. A last piece I would add that I think has been uh, also, a, a really important issue that's not been addressed has been what this infection does in healthcare. Uh, yesterday, the Italians reported more than 5,000 Italian healthcare workers who were infected as part of their jobs on the, on the job. Things were so bad there and are so bad there that they don't have respiratory protection. They've run out. They don't have the N95 respirators they need. And such that if you have COVID infection yourself and you are well enough to at least work, meaning you still may have signs and symptoms, coughing, you have to come to work because they are that short of staff. One who, first of all, were caring for so many patients, but second of all, got infected themselves and now go from being a caregiver to somebody who needs care, which is a huge switch. And when this occurs in particular in the staff in the intensive care units, this is a huge, huge issue. This is like taking out a special forces person. Uh, this, they can't be replaced by just any private or any sergeant. Uh, they need to basically be replaced by somebody with an equivalent expertise, and that doesn't exist. So we've got to protect our healthcare workers, uh, both from an ethical standpoint, but also very much from a practical standpoint. If we don't have protected healthcare workers, I guarantee you, the major increase in, in uh, cases coming into health facilities, needing care, uh, will overrun the systems overnight. And when, one last thing around this issue with uh, respiratory protection. There has been a lot of uh, news recently about uh, this idea of using the Defense Production Act and that the president has recently signed that would allow him to take over companies, in a sense, to have them make the kinds of uh, products we need. Look no further than just the N95 respirator, something we desperately need uh, to protect our healthcare workers. Number one is that no one stockpiled these before this event. Hospitals didn't have the money. We, you know, I wrote a piece in 2005 about our lack of preparedness, and frankly, we were better prepared back then for what's happening than we are now. And the reason being is, is because of the fact that hospitals had more capacity. We hadn't whittled it down to the bone yet. Uh, they actually did stockpile some of these things and they had the money to do that. That's not the case now. And so, first of all, you don't have any stockpiles. Second of all, you're just coming off an influenza season where uh, there was an increased use of this personal protection equipment or PPE. Third of all, the whole world's needed it. So it's not just the fact that one part of the world due to a, a tsunami-like disaster, earthquake-like disaster, you know, a hurricane where the use can be very, very high in a given region. This has been high use throughout the world. 
And so the, the supply coming into this uh, pandemic emergence was already very low. Well, we do have companies who have spent uh, many years making these respirators with great expertise. They have very unique machines that just can't put together anywhere else. Um, I've heard people say, well, let's have the car manufacturers do this. I've actually talked to automobile executives who say, why would anybody think we could do this? First of all, we don't really make anything. We assemble everything. We buy parts. We buy the kinds of things we assemble. Second of all, you know, making a widget on a machine is very different than making a ventilator or a mask. And, and you just can't retool these. I, I kind of liken it just because you can make mousetraps doesn't mean you can make a cathedral. And as a result of that, uh, we can't change the production we have in the time period it's going to take. You know, when the U.S. Pacific Fleet was destroyed at Pearl Harbor, it took our country, despite a war footing, over three years before we could restore that fleet. Well, we're not going to restore this year. As, as a former Secretary of Defense once said, when you go to war, you can't go with what you want. You got to go with what you have. And this is what we have right now. And let me just give you an example of why this is such a challenge. Uh, it's already been publicly stated by 3M, uh, a, a company right here in Minnesota, a leader in production of N95s with great expertise, that they can produce about 35 million uh, respirators a month in this uh, country. And when you look at that, that sounds like a lot. One hospital in New York alone, one large hospital is using about 2 million N95s a month right now. You can see how quickly these will be exhausted. And the U.S. government has such a limited strategic stockpile, which frankly is going to be exhausted in days. So we have to gear up as a country and say, you know what, we're not going to have these. We're going to have to figure out how to ration these, how to conserve them. How can we be creative? For example, today we're, we're using a, a lot of PPE, taking samples from people, because when you stick a, a, a swab down someone's throat, they'll often cough. And if they're sick, this is a significant issue. But you know what? There are really well done studies showing that patients can take their own throat swabs with the same efficiency and effectiveness as a professional. So put a patient in a room, have them take their own, and then hand them to someone uh, who's not right in front of them as they cough. There are many creative things. Uh, instead of having 14 patients in 14 different isolation rooms, put all 14 COVID patients in one ward and wall that off and make sure from an engineering standpoint that the air is, from that ward is not being restricted into the hospital and then have one set of, of PPE you use in that room for hours and hours instead of taking it on and taking it off every time you go in a room. So we need to start working very, very much on that. But we've got to get off the idea that somehow if the government takes over these companies, we're going to suddenly have this new supply of materials, which is just not going to happen. That, again, is what I call happy talk. It gives people a sense of something that's not possible. I have I've seen no company, no company, that could do more to make sure that they're manufacturing, whether it be ventilators, whether it be respirators for breathing, whatever, that aren't doing that right now. And, and so let's just get on with it, how we're going to protect our healthcare workers as much as we can and know that this is going to be a huge challenge. So when you ask me about where we're going, what the conditions are right now, I think two to four weeks from now, we're going to see 
the case numbers continue to climb something fierce in this country. I think we're going to run into testing, which is going to cause a great crisis and confidence about what we've been saying, which we could start to deal with now, forecast this now. We're going to see major shortages of PPE for workers. Don't be surprised by that. And as somebody who has loved ones in the healthcare centers that will be impacted by this, I care. As somebody who has five kids in schools, I care what happens there. So also we have to assume that people who are trying to make the decisions about what will have the most impact, what won't, what should we do, what can we do, uh, have to be taken at face value. They're doing it for the very best reasons they can uh, from a science standpoint. And if we, you know, lighten up on some of the uh, uh, various restrictions, don't do it because we're just trying to favor business. We're trying to bring back the economy. What we're trying to do is keep an economy going that we desperately need every day just to keep the lights on, the water running, uh, the medicines flowing, the food in our houses. That's what we're talking about. So this is the challenge I think we see over the upcoming days. And last but not least, we just need straight talk. I, I, I find it so difficult for uh, the citizens today to hear so many of these different reports where uh, largely because of, of partisanship and so forth, we get into this debate, well, who's to blame for what? And in many, many cases, you know, it is a situation we're in, we got to move on, we got to figure out what to do, but don't tell people things that aren't true. You know, I, I hear this all the time from the media. They ask me, they say, well, you can't say that. People will panic. And I'm sitting there saying, no. Have you seen anybody yet in a riot on the streets? Have you seen cars overturned? Have you seen buildings torched? Have you seen people hurt? Have you even seen a fist fight, let alone a knife fight or a gun shooting in a department store where somebody grabbed the last roll of toilet paper ahead of somebody else? No. But people are legitimately scared, and they should be. I understand that. And what we need to do is not only address their heads, we have to address their hearts. And one of the ways of doing that is just be honest. I have found in all my years and all my experience that if you tell people the truth, even if it's hard, they will listen, they will process it, they will, with our help, get through it. But where they don't want to go is in that kind of it's a low-risk situation, and two weeks later, we're in a state of war. That's when they lose credibility. We lose credibility as a public health community, as, go, as people who lead, and we've got to give them that. So, so if I could say anything in, in this particular podcast that's, I think, really important, everybody just try to tell the truth. Don't sugarcoat it. Don't, don't inflame it. You know, don't say things that you don't have the data to support or reasons to think that the data would support it. And let's move on and get together with this. Mike, is there anything else well, you, you know, want to add? I, I, I think that as much as I'm dealing with as a scientist, I'm an epidemiologist, you know, unfortunately, I uh, uh, have worried about this for a long time. I've thought about it, as you mentioned in my book. Uh, I actually lay out a scenario uh, I like this. Uh, chapter 13 happens to be on coronaviruses in which I the title is SARS and MERS, a harbinger of things to come. So, you know, that is all the science in me, and I'm going to do the very best I can to apply the science that I know and, and not be afraid to do it if I think it's the right thing. But at the same time, I think all of us should take a step back and recognize in these very difficult times we are also fathers, we're mothers, we're children, we're friends, we're colleagues. 
And we're going to have some tough days ahead as we know more and more people who are seriously ill or who die from this. You know, I've said over and over again in my life that uh, my kids and my grandkids give me reason why to do what I do. My book was, in fact, a love letter to them. It was about what can we do to make a better world. And I think that if, I, if there's anything I leave this podcast with is, one, we will get through this. Of all the things I talked about tonight, they're hard, they're difficult, but we'll get through this. But at the same time, we'll get through it if we acknowledge to each other that there are many good things we can do. How do you help your neighbor who is shut in so that they don't have to go out? And how can they go to the grocery store or the pharmacy or wherever they need to help them out? Loneliness is going to be also a very major enemy in all of this. If we keep people sequestered so they don't get infected, you know, reach out to people. There's so many good things we can do. We have a group here at the University of Minnesota and our medical students have done, I think, just an incredible thing. They've organized themselves now uh, because they can't go to classes. Uh, the first year medical student, second year, they can't go on the wards and actually work. But what they can do is babysit and support families of healthcare workers that otherwise wouldn't be able to go to work, who we need really badly there. There are things like that we can do. And so I, I leave this podcast on that note that, you know, start finding the good things in life that we can do to help each other get through this, as well as experience the tough things. And uh, I'm certain with that, we will get through this and we will limit the pain as much as we can. But I will be honest, we are going to have a lot of pain in the days ahead. And our job is to do the very best professionals we can to help each other and our need and our absolute uh, requirement is to be the good souls that we can be to help people get through. So with that, I, I thank you for listening and uh, look forward to talking to you uh, next week. Thank you, Dr. Osterholm. You've been listening to the Osterholm Update, COVID-19, a weekly podcast from the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy. We'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, you can keep up with the latest COVID-19 news by visiting our website, sidrap.umn.edu.